Over 200,000 of the homeless people in the United States of America are women and girls. The most needed and understocked item in homeless shelters, feminine hygiene products. Joy Road Media is proud to tell you about the Clean Love Project. The Clean Love Project's mission is to help women and young girls feel clean, loved, and empowered by distributing clean love kits to alleviate their hygiene needs. Go to thecleanloveproject.org to find out how you can help. The Clean Love Project focuses on the Metro Detroit area, but it also distributes kits worldwide. If you are a female in need of a clean love kit, go to thecleanloveproject.org and request one today. Joy Road Media is a proud supporter of The Clean Love Project at thecleanloveproject.org. This is how the truth cast sausage is made. All exactly a hundred words as as uh, Microsoft Word counts words. Mm. I'm waiting for I'm waiting for somebody to put it in a different program and go, dude, this is 101 words or ah. some shit like that. Which is fine with me. Like last night some Trumper tried to lambase me and uh, you know, like about the book being free on on uh Kindle Unlimited and you get what you pay for and this is crap, whatever. And and obviously the BLM people were watching that pro Trump person and then the blm people just jumped it and went you know of course you don't like it because it's beautiful and it's got you know it's got good themes and you know that kind of shit so that was cool too that was fucking you know like these people i don't even know are just going oh you want to rip this book because there's like liberal content in it okay well we're gonna back them up and tell everybody to fucking buy it yes you know yeah it's so it's 365 100 word stories and then a lot of this is subtle some of it not so subtle if you did read one story a day for a year yeah on the julian calendar when you got to mid-october the stories would start getting spooky oh cool on on elvis's birthday there's an elvis story oh wow like on you know like this is not the example, but like it's a fake example. But there's examples of this on like National Poinsettia Day. There's a story about a fucking poinsettia. Well, do you want to get into the interview organically and yeah, like sure. have like, us you tell have, me what you want? I don't. You well, know. let's uh, let me use what we already have, and uh, let me just say because we never mentioned it that uh, well, first of all, talking to Jimmy Doom, and your book is called Humans, Comma Being. And yes. it is available on Amazon, and I yes. have a copy. And now that I know that it is 365 stories, I'm so excited because that means I can actually start reading and get through as many as I can and then go to sleep. And that's awesome. I, I'm yeah, so excited. Yeah. So. I mean, I, I came very close to calling it vowel movement because I figured <laughs> people would put it in the in the toilet, you know, <laughs> in the toilet, on the top of the tank, or right. possibly in the toilet, you know, like, but, uh, yeah, and uh, so, and then somebody finally, after, it's been out for about two weeks, and somebody specifically said, yeah, the stories are perfect for the toilet. And I'm like, wow, I can't believe it took this long for somebody to comment that. <laughs> You've done quite a, a bit of interviews with people 
asking questions about yes. you and you and I have known each other for a long time, but there yes. are some things that I do not know about you. So okay. I am going to attempt to ask questions that have not been asked of you before. And then I'm sure we'll get into the that. stuff that, you know, people okay. have asked you a billion times. So, yeah, right on. um, your mom is a journalist. You were she raised by a, a writer. Well, like she, her journalistic skills you might be lacking, but yeah, she was a restaurant critic. Yeah, that's a journalist. <laughs> Don't stop being so hypercritical of poor Molly well, Abrams. Yeah, you know, <laughs> yes. I, and see, like, I, I can't believe this is happening, but here's the deal. And, and you keep as much of this as you want because it's coming out of my throat and you can throw out whatever you want. But people tend to to think because she had a high profile position that I had some like luxurious life. And, and, and don't get me wrong. There were flashes here and there of definite privilege, but she also, she's still a she single also, parent. She also had a pretty with... ripping gambling problem. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I like, so I, while I didn't grow up in poverty by any means, I went to private school. My grandfather paid for that. Mm-hmm. Like, um, like I was closer to the lower end of the economic scale than I think people think. Right. And, and then years ago in the heyday of ALD and I'm singing, this is the West side, a guy, and I'm not going to give him the satisfaction of naming him, but a, a fairly prominent pop culture figure in Detroit had met my brother, who's almost eight years younger. And by that point, my mom had moved to a little shack in Gross Point. I'm not kidding. I can yeah. show people pictures. This like tiny little bungalow in, Gro- in Gross Point. And my brother was going to Gross Point South. So this guy just takes it upon himself to go. Oh yeah, his brother goes aside. He's from Gross Point. He's like loaded. He, that's all bullshit. Like that whole pop punk rock persona is just is just complete crap. And I'm like, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa no, I really did grow up on the west side of Detroit. Yeah, you know, I, I'm like a my I, I grew up in a you know a nice house, a little rundown house, but I like we were like a mile down outer drive from the motherfucking Smith Projects. Yeah, you know. I mean, like it was Detroit in the like the early eighties, you know, my bike got ripped off. I got held up at work twice, you know, like it, it like, so I, I wasn't on some yacht somewhere with, you know, because Mumsy was this famous restaurant critic, Yeah, you know? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, but, but I mean, I, every, almost every Tuesday night I got to eat at a decent restaurant. So exactly. I had that, yeah. 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 Did you develop a taste for like good dining from that? Like, I, I don't know what kind of stuff you eat really. Like, like, Oh, I'll eat anything, but that's more like she didn't teach us as much as I think the average person would. I think she was focused on like, this is my job and my job isn't to teach my kids about cuisine. Mm -hmm. And like, so I kind of feel like I could have learned more, but as far as being exposed to it, like, yeah, I mean, here, here's the one over one. Like if there's a, I'm picking a moment. She starts dating and marries my, my stepfather. 
and um he's a vietnam vet you know so he's got i mean he wasn't like the super masculine jock guy, but you know, he's a fucking Vietnam vet. So he's got some, you know, like, Hey, I've survived some crazy shit type deal. We go out to this Asian place in Southfield on Southfield. It's not there anymore. The strip mall still is. And I never heard of wasabi. And I'm like, it just looked cool. Right. You're a kid. It's like <laughs> yeah. this wad of green shit. Yeah. It Tell looks like Play-Doh. What, and- like, <laughs> 10 year old kid doesn't like a wad of green oh, shit, whether no. it comes out of his face or, you know, somebody puts it on a plate. Okay, cool. It's a wad of green shit. What's that? It's wasabi. Don't touch it. You'll like, it's too hot for you. You'll cry. Well, I'm like, really? And so I take like a spoonful of it and oh. put it in my mouth. And so my stepdad's like, oh, great. We'll get the check because he's going to throw up now and dinner's ruined. And God damn it. Like, I haven't even had my entree and he's totally going to freak out. And I was like, mm, this is good. You know, and they're like, the, you know, the waitress is coming over. You can spit it in this napkin. I'm like, no. And I eat it and I'm, I'm fine. I mean, I mean, my nostrils are kind of flaring, but I'm like, that's when I knew I loved spicy food. Yeah. And and so I've been a wasabi fan ever since I was like nine years old. Now you're one of the smartest people I know. You you have That's one of the so largest. Tragic, Mike. Oh fuck you! <laughs> you're such a humble dick. <laughs> you have one of the largest vocabularies of anyone I know. You are a person <laughs> can, who can I trade that for a penis? Can I, can I, like, can I give away like twenty four thousand words and get an extra inch and some girth? Because like I don't think that that's the way it works. But anyway, uh, you read and you write for fun what kind of student were you did it translate well into that or was it one of those no, things no, where no, i got good i i did okay in english but as you well know like you know my rebellious streak hit probably about my sophomore year of high school okay and i had gone to a small private school because i was supposed to be gifted right mm-hmm. and then I and still say like, you are, but and, you know, you're humble. I mean, you know, maybe, and, but it's like, I barely knew anybody in high school. I'm sure plenty of people out there have moved to a different high school, you know, and they're the new kid. And like UAD, University of Detroit Jesuit High School, is super academically challenging. So I'm being academically challenged for the first time in my life. And I'm also like a rebellious kid. I'm like figuring out who I am and school didn't fit into that. There's 104 guys in our grad. It was all boys school, by the way, which mm-hmm. was also part of like the rebellion. I'm going, Oh fuck. I'm in like, like I, I had gone to an all boys private grade school and now everybody's going, you privileged son of a bitch. But <laughs> like, I, you know, that, that was just a fluke that I, I took some test when I was four years old. And my mom's friend is like, Holy shit. He's off the charts on this. You know, you got, you can't send him to, tr- to Detroit public school. You got to send him somewhere else. So, um, and then I wind up in UAD. Well, everybody's fucking smart there. And then I'm just going through this rebellious period and I'm smoking tons of pot, like not so much freshman year. I'm freshman year. I was probably, you know, dabbling mm. and then it's Catholic school. So it's also mandatory that you drink. So by sophomore year, I'm drinking and I'm getting high and I just don't give a fuck. 
And uh, so I think out of 104 in our graduating class, I was like 100 and, 101st in grade point average. Maybe I was worse. I don't know. I mean, I couldn't have been much worse. I know I wasn't last, and I know I wasn't valedictorian. I was way closer to the bottom. I, I was going to go chronologically, but um, l- let me uh, let's lead off of. I didn't mean to fuck up your time. No, 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 no. You're you're not. I'm I'm trying to get to be a better listener. <laughs> like, I feel like Dicky is such uh, an exaggeration yeah. of me where he just doesn't listen. Now I can lean into it and not listen. <laughs> I, but yeah. he, so that's the best part of Dicky. That's my favorite part. of Dickie. <laughs> So you had this rebellious streak and this is going to be pretty personal, but what led to your decision to get sober? Cause you've been sober now for a few years. Five. Wow. Okay. Five um, years. Yeah. And November 19th of 2015. Um, so like there's a million things I could say about it, but, um, once I started acting like the band is done and I dealt with that. And then this brief moment, very brief, it looked like ALD was going to get back together. Mm-hmm. And, I got too excited about that and it didn't happen and I got frustrated and, and I, I, at the suggestion of Kimmy Backus, now the late Kimmy Backus, she just passed away in this fall. Oh my God. She, I didn't, you didn't know that. I didn't. Sorry, oh Mike. my God. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. What happened? Oh, yeah, diabetes. It just finally got her, man. Oh God. Like, yeah. Oh. She, uh, wow. Jesus. Sorry, Mike. I thought you knew that. I didn't. Um, oh my yeah. God. Um. God, she's such yeah, a sweetheart. It, it, I got the. It, yeah, she was. Uh, she, I mean, she changed my life, and and you know, so yes, she's the one. I'm having. So I'll tell this story, and it is one of my favorite stories, and, and especially because it's sounds so much like bullshit. But so I'm freaking out about. The, the big dog decides we're not getting the band back together and I'm having a tantrum and Kimmy Backus says, you always talked about those independent movies that you did in the, in the nineties. Why don't you just like go to an audition? And in mid rage, I grabbed the Metro times and I'm like, Oh, why don't I go to an audition? Maybe I'll just open the motherfucking Detroit Metro times in Detroit and there'll just be some open audition. I'll just, and so I start ripping through the Metro times, flopping the pages going, where are all the goddamn auditions in the Detroit Metro times? Kimmy, I'll just go to one of these and I pull the page open and I go, Holy shit, there's a half page ad for open auditions <laughs> at Motion Picture Institute. And and she's like, she's so like backed off of my temper tantrum. She's like, Are you fucking kidding me? And I'm like, no, come here, look, look, there's a half page ad for open auditions. And she's like, Well, you have to go now, motherfucker. You have to go. And I was like, You got it. And like and I was I think I was the second person in the parking lot at Motion Picture Institute in Troy. And went in and I got cast and in like three movies, I, I went from student film to like three, four movies later, I'm working with Der- David Carradine in Darkfield. Yeah. And the last Carradine, movie that he completed. That was, yeah. yeah. 
I remember when you were shooting that. Yeah, it, it was. And Carradine starts being super supportive of me and like talking to me like between take and he didn't have to man he could have gone back to his fucking rv and said i you know forget all these chuckleheads and he just for whatever reason he was like really supportive and interested in my career and my aspirations and where i came from and when i had hit like the carrying seal of approval i was like i can do this man yeah so i'm doing it and then I get booked on of this is you know years later I get booked on um, Avid and the Art of Love and they're night shoots but by now I'm fucking drinking so much so often that staying sober during the day for night shoots is kind of a bitch like it's re- it's like a chore as much as I love acting right mm-hmm. so I'm on the set we're shooting at Lincoln Street Art Park. And now I've been sober for like, we're deep into the night of shooting and I'm not sober, sober, but now I haven't had a drink in like 14 hours or something. Yeah. One of the guys on the crew walks over and goes, Hey man, uh, they don't need you for like 45 more minutes. Why don't we take you over to marble bar and get some shots in you? And I look at the guy and I go, uh, bro, I, I don't drink when I'm working. And he goes, well, you might want to consider it because you're shaking the fuck apart. Oh. And and I'm like, and I looked down at my hands. I, and it, to me, it was like a minor tremble, but it was like I was shaking. I was like uh, shaky. And I'm like, fuck, I got to quit this shit. So I get it in my head that I'm going to quit. But like uh, the good drunk that I am, I rap I've in the art of love, get completely annihilated before even the rap party. And then I'm just on like this four day bender and, it, and I'm just going, you know, I'm going to go on this bender and I'm going to quit. But I, I'm like, now I'm like up to like a half gallon of vodka and about eight beers a day. So I'm just drinking, going along. I, I got money from the movie. I'm not, yeah, I'm not worried about too much. And I call my girlfriend. I wake up one morning and I call my girlfriend and I go, hi, honey, what do you want to do for your birthday? Anything, you name it. And she starts to cry and says, it was yesterday, asshole. Oh, and I go, fuck me. I'm never drinking again. And she starts laughing and goes, fuck you, asshole. You'll never quit. Click. And I quit. That's awesome. It was not as easy as that. And I quit. It was not, you know, and then I went, oh, God, I got to quit. And I gave my neighbor the leftover beers in the fridge. I kept the vodka in the freezer fridge just in case. And then I just said, you got to quit. And I... I don't recommend this to people like, but I detoxed myself, which was ugly as shit. And, you know, wrapped in a blanket, sweating, freaking out. And then I like, look at the calendar. I'm like, Oh, I got to go work at court town tavern. This was like four days after I quit. So I walk into work and, you know, I punch in and I'm like, you know, and my boss knew I was trying to quit because she was kind of sick of me drinking. So she's super supportive of it. But then 
it's Corktown Tavern, so all my friends come in there and they're buying me. Sh- they're trying to buy me shots, or they used to buy me shots for the whole shift. So every time one of my friends walked in the bar, I'm I, instead of going, "Hey, Nick, great to see you," I'm going, "I'm not fucking drinking. I quit fucking drink. Do not buy me shots. Fuck you." <laughs> and uh, and so then they take a, a they take a pool, like you know. Hey, Jimmy, quit drinking. When, we're doing a pool. When's he going to start drinking again? And, and, and they start picking dates. And a guy walks in right near the end of my shift. And and they're like, hey, man, we're having a pool. Like, Jimmy, quit drinking. We're having a pool to say, when's Jimmy going to drink again? And it, my shift ends at like 7 o'clock. It's like 10 to 7. My buddy looks up at the clock and he goes, I got 1014 <laughs> oh. and I'm like, wow, dude, no faith at all. And I'm like, fuck you. I quit. I am done. And I was done, man. I remember right around the time that my dad was dying from, you know, a mix of things. One of them being drinking. Uh, you were telling me, and this was about, uh, well, this was July two years ago. Uh, you were telling me that it isn't just day to day. It, sometimes it's minute to minute where you're just kind of sitting there watching the clock, waiting for it to turn midnight so you can say that you had another oh, day. Oh, yeah, I, I've had yeah. days like that. I, I wouldn't say it's like that all the time, but yeah, no, like when, yeah. you do, when you do lean on the one day at a time thing and you're like, you're like, fuck this life sucks. I don't care. I'm going to like I'm, I'm going to get all fucked up. It, it doesn't matter anymore. And then you kind of go like, all right, man, one day at a time, hang in there. And you look at the clock and you're like, you know, okay, if I make it to midnight, I did, you know, two years and nine days. And that's great. And you should be proud of yourself. And you're going to go to the liquor store at midnight. And like by midnight, you're going, oh, just go another day, dumb fuck. And, uh, and then you do. I, I'm paraphrasing, but uh, in the book Dry by Augustine Burroughs, He's got a thing where, you know, his friend is questioning how AA works and and like meetings work. And he says, well, if you go to a meeting, you know, you're not going to drink that day. And and friends like what it's like magic. And he's like, no, just because you feel like a complete asshole that you were at a meeting and then you went out and drank afterwards. Right. You know, like, yeah. So you've always been pretty talented when it came to acting. But some of the stuff that I've seen in the last couple of years is just phenomenal. Do you feel like sobriety has led to you putting out some of the best work of your life? I, you know, I don't like to draw that straight line okay. because, like, I mean, it, and I, I certainly can't go, oh, no, Mike, it's not sobriety. It's my really hard work. <laughs> I know. Like, that. There's no like, way to answer that question. You know, I know. Like, it, it's, it, But, like, I mean... I'll honestly say, and people are going to fucking crucify me for this, but there have been times where like, especially early calls, like I'm on set and they're throwing me in front of a camera by like 10 to eight. And I might be a little bit hesitant. And I think, you know, if you were hungover and desperate, you'd be playing this hungover and desperate character way better. Mm. You know, those moments are fleeting. You know, it's not the entire body of work, but I do have those moments of like, you know, wow, you know, you are better. But then I, I guess I do know that 
my mind is in better shape because I haven't been pounding booze into it. Right. You know, and then years ago, and it's been over a decade, it's been over almost 12 years since I done blow. But like, um, when I did both, yeah, I mean, I like, I know my brain works better. So I guess it would make sense that the acting has improved because my brain works better. And, you know, I also, and, um, people, any actor will tell you this, whether they ever struggled with, with booze or not. It's just, it's one of those things where the more you do it and the more you think about it and the more experiences you, you have, the better you get at it. Yeah. You know, if you really care and that it's, you know, I like, I didn't get sober for that girlfriend. I mean, I cared about her. I loved her, but I, I got, it was mostly that, Oh, you're going to ruin your acting career. Like, and people on sets know you have a drinking problem and they're not going to book you if they're worried that you're going to drink yourself into a stupor or you're not going to be able to perform. So like, because I got, I mean, I wanted my life to be better. I wanted to be sober for acting. Then yeah, I do spend more time thinking about it and, you know, so it may be less, uh, less instinctive now mm-hmm. but it's but it's definitely it, it, it's more of a focus because i've taken the like that 10 hours a day i'd be drunk out of my out of the equation right a mutual friend of ours is in the program and he was talking about how his sponsor pointed out that once people get sober because they've already accomplished this big task other successes seem to follow too and you know that's certainly true for him and i i feel like it's true for you too like you are a person who is a working actor now you know you are paying your bills from acting like that's and from writing and creating and you know that's that's pretty tremendous man that's yeah. I, I mean, I know I'm fortunate in that way. I mean, when you when you going back to the, the sobriety thing, yeah. Once you you've tackled that and you tackle it every day, basically. But that first that first couple months is a bitch. You know, I shouldn't say that because I tell people not to say that. It's hard, but it's it's. I think sometimes people make it out to be harder than it is, but. The first couple months are more difficult than the everyday. Once you get a groove, once you get rolling and you've learned to live sober, it's easier. But once you've not conquered it, once you've you've made that decision and you've gone, holy shit, I can do this. Then the other things aren't as scary. Like if I can quit this fucking physical and mental addiction that I've carried around with me, then I can go into this audition and I can play, you know, I can play fucking Santa Claus for five fucking minutes, you know? Yeah. Do you remember your first audition? My very, okay. At MPI, my very first audition was for this military thing that I didn't book. Okay. But right after that, and um, <laughs> are you ready for the, you've heard this story before. I believe there's no way in hell you couldn't have heard the story, but for the benefit of listeners, my second audition after this military thing was for a thing called a slice of misconception. And I auditioned for a mentally ill gentleman who believed that Sarah Lee was a real person who is making cheesecake just for him. 
<laughs> and it was a cattle call audition. So there, there had been multiple people auditioning for this role prior to me. And the director had been disappointed in their ability to convey their love for the cheesecake. And he's a new, new director, student director. And so he explains to me that this person is completely obsessive about this cheesecake to the point where he thinks that he's in love with Sarah Lee and Sarah Lee is in love with him back. And so he tells me this, then he repeats it. And then I walk to my mark as he's repeating it again, then I, I'm, I have, it's a cold, cold read. So I have the script in my hand and I'm, I'm looking it over and he goes, now you're really, really in love with the cheesecake. And I'm like, yeah, bro, I got it, man. I'm in love with the cheesecake. I got it. So he's like, whenever you're ready. And I said, I'm ready. Let you know, let's go. And he goes, now you're really in love with the cheesecake. And I'm like, and I, Oh, and he gives me a cheesecake box as a prop. Mm-hmm. And I, now I'm completely ready to go. I'm in a punk band, right? You like, you walk out on stage and you start screaming, right? You're right. You're ready to go. There's not a lot of bullshit. So I got this cheesecake box and I got the script. So I got nothing to memorize. I'm in, kind of in a comfort zone and I'm ready to talk. And he goes, now, I want to see that you're really, really in love with cheesecake. I'm like, I know I'm in fucking love with the cheesecake, okay? So now I'm pissed. <laughs> and, and so I'm reading the lines, and I got this cheesecake box, and he wants to see that I love the cheesecake. And I'm like, how can I impress upon this guy that I love the cheesecake? So I just go, fuck it. And I crimp the cheesecake box so it sort of resembles the female anatomy and i simulate going down on it oh and on camera is a great director by the name of chuck grady he's like an emmy winner Mm -hmm. and he looks at the director and he goes that's your guy uh bro that's your guy Uh, right there (laughs) like the guy who licks the cheesecake that's your guy he just went down on the fucking cheesecake box that's him cast him (laughs) and he cast me that's awesome yeah so i yeah i'll never forget that and uh and then that that led to another film called the horseman and then the horseman led directly to darkfields chuck grady worked on the horseman with me and he said hey man doug doug schultz has this role and you'd be opposite david carradine and i was like yeah kick ass let's go and he's like the idea of working with Carradine doesn't intimidate you. I'm like, no, why, why should it, man? I want to be an actor. I'm like, I want to work with Carradine. I'm not intimidated by anybody. And he's like, okay, dude, let's go. And so that's kind of how that went down. Since you mentioned ALD, was ALD your first band? Yeah. Yeah. That was my, yeah. I almost fucked that up. They asked me to be in the band and I was like, ah, I don't know if I want to be in a band. I, you know, and like, cause some like the Jeff Gordon, the original drummer that asked me, he was into like more of like the no melody, really, really fast bands. And that mm. wasn't my thing. I mean, some of those bands I liked, but I didn't want to be in one. Right. And then I went to a party at Burt Bacher's house after bookies and bands are playing and i hear this guy start playing guitar and i'm like who the fuck is that playing guitar and and they're like yeah that's a band that wanted you to be in it and you turned it down and i'm like hey man can i still audition for your band and they're like oh we got like five other guys auditioning dude but i suppose you can come by the clubhouse and came by the clubhouse and i got it the first two eps are they're really only two eps right or 
there's there's this there's the always out of control but never out of beer right. five song single okay. five song seven well, I, inch, I consider whatever. that the EP okay and yeah. then then there's then there's Solo the Solo Storm yeah. cassette and then there's uh, the uh, like the anthology CD again always right. out of control but never out of beer which is that has everything ba- yeah. like almost all the material although it bugs me to this day like fuck man we had old recordings from the original white room when it was in the nearest basement in gross point like and and we we could have fucking used that but you know we had we could put like seven more songs on it but the big dog was embarrassed of all that really early material so so the first single which i still consider the ep Mm. is considerably different than solo storm it's it's a lot of partying anthems and yeah. it's such a sing-along it, it almost reminds me of like the mojo nixon christmas album where it is just like a party on vinyl Second, Soul of the Storm. What changed within you? Was was it just that was the news? And I remember at the time, you know, we were all scared that there might be another draft. And like, Soul of the Storm is such a mature album. And, you know, because there were a lot of punk bands at the time doing the party albums out, you know, putting out the party albums. But I don't remember anyone else at the time who was like, I have something really important to say. And I want to say it about the war in the Middle East. I want to say it about class struggles. I want to say it about apathy between, you know, the classes. And like, tell me where you were at when you wrote that, because it's such a a million times more. And I, I love both, but. That Soul of the Storm is such a mature album. Whenever somebody says mature, it almost seems like it almost seems like we took it too far. But really, no, I no. Was, but oh, I, but I you were this kid fan. in his twenties, and you yeah. wrote this thing that unfortunately is still relevant today. You know, <laughs> I wish it wasn't, but yeah. I think everything on that is just as important today as it was back in you know, 1991 or what, whenever it came out. Yeah. yeah. I think, I think in the Trump era, 
because the like Soul Storm is like pro military, it like that people would just take it to be like sort of unenlightened. But my whole deal was coming from being a stepson of a Vietnam vet is like and hearing his stories. It, I mean, he told more stories about like coming back home than he did about being there and about how people just were not, you know, like you, you wouldn't wear your camo anywhere because people hated you. Yeah. And, and I like, I didn't want to see that to happen to another generation of kids. So I'm like, I'm like, all right, here's the deal, man. There's these working class kids that like, you know, they signed up to go to the army and, you know, see the world, and now they're getting blown to fucking smithereens in some, like, you know, Kuwait, where the fuck, we didn't even know what Kuwait was, you know, kind of like they didn't know what Vietnam was until all of a sudden we're at war there, right? Yeah. Nobody could pick it out on, on a map. Yeah, so in, in the class, you know, I inherited I inherited a lot of those songs in ALD, and uh, trust me, I love to drink beer, and, and, you know, so sure, I'll sing the song Drink Beer, this is fun, because I'm, I'm going to drink a ton of it in my lifetime. You know, but like I was a Clash fan and they sang about important shit. And so I wanted to sing about important shit. And that was and that was what was happening at the time. And and then, you know, Stare Down, which is like probably the more timeless song on that. Stare Down's about child abuse. And, you know, when people like I, I, I was so happy to have written that song and and perform that song but then you know you never think about this but then a kid comes up and goes dude i feel like you wrote that song about me yeah. and i'm like and i'm like no sorry bro i wrote it about me and they're like oh yeah okay cool but it's for me now forever and i'm like wow that's you know that's amazing and uh so and it's you know because like the chorus of that it's almost you know when the dirty bastards stare me down you can bet your ass i'm staring back, staring back. Yeah. you know it's like it's that act of defiance where it's like i'm not going to stoop to the same violence you are like just the i'm holding my ground and i feel like there's just so much more defiance in that beer don't go to school i'm kind of singing that having fun with it but at the same time i'm going to these kids like you could get an education and get the fuck out of here because like you don't want to work in a in a 
car wash your whole life, mm-hmm. you know, but that, that doesn't make for a good punk rock song, you know, like, you know, unless you're a straight edge band, which we weren't. And, <laughs> nope. You know, so, but when I'm saying, you know, like, yeah, bet your ass I'm staring back. Yeah, you can be defiant and it can work in your favor. And, you know, I, and, and that, that um, lends itself to the acting career where like, you know, people are like, Oh, now you're going to be an actor. And I'm like, now I'm going to try it. And if, and if it doesn't work, then I'm going to try something else, but I'm going to give it everything I fucking have. And, you know, and, and people are like, you can't make a living or the other big one, you know, the most well-meaning people in the world, you have to go to LA. And I'm like, no, I don't, but Hey, I, I don't want to go to this huge city where nobody knows me and that I've been to a couple of times and didn't like that much. And, you know, like when I could be here and I, you know, instead of going to a thousand auditions and booking one thing once and, and paying, you know, the, you know, you definitely know paying $3,800 a month for a studio apartment, you know, like I can be here, pay $400 a month for an apartment and, and book, you know, 30% of the shit that, that I auditioned for, or just have some guy call me up and go, you're Jimmy doom. I want you to be in my fucking movie. Yeah. Whereas if I go to LA, it's like, Hey, homeless guy, you know, don't stand in front of my apartment, <laughs> you know, like I, that's yeah. them saying that to me, like looking at me and going, you know, you, you know, you just look like some random homeless guy. Like, so, you know, which is, as you know, has been a lot of my career. <laughs> yes. You know, I do love your go-to line. If it weren't for playing homeless guys, I'd probably be a homeless guy. And that's why, you know, I take it super, super seriously. Allah, and I'm not comparing myself to him, but Lieutenant Dan, Gary Sinise. Yeah. Gary Sinise. Yeah. You know, Gary Sinise plays this disabled veteran and makes a lot of money to do it when he's not disabled. And I don't even believe he's a veteran, you know, he, but he got this role in Forrest Gump that he couldn't turn down and it changed his career and made him a shitload of money. And so now he spends his time in his foundation, raising money for disabled veterans and, yeah. and troubled veterans. And me, I'm like, here I am on my fifth homeless guy. And, you know, in some cases getting paid a ridiculous amount of money. I don't make a ton of money to be an actor, but like there have been days where I've made fucking $500 a day to play a homeless person. And so when like my friend Jeff has a charity, the congregation of everyone that brings survival backpacks out to the homeless of the city of Detroit, I have to support that. Yeah. You know, like I, like I, you know, real, real people like, you know, I feel about it. I'm when we were working together and we're, and I, that scene where I had to cry and deadpan, you know, I like, I'm not going to fake it. You know, I, it's a real person that I'm playing, you know, yeah, a a real ghost, (laughs) you know, the ghost of a real person, a dead punk rocker. And like, if I'm playing a homeless guy, I'm not going to make it a cartoon because there really are people like that all over our city and all over the country. I remember acting opposite of you in that scene where, you know, even though you're saying words that I wrote, I was getting like genuinely moved watching you go through what I still consider a really tricky monologue because you went through three pretty, you know, 
drastic emotions in one, you know, hefty chunk chunk of dialogue where you start off playful, then you get vulnerable and cry, and then you get vicious at the end. And it was such a stellar piece of acting. And, you know, I was so glad that it was on your reel. I don't know if it's still on your reel, but man, I'm so proud that something I wrote and something you acted the hell out of is a piece that you wanted to showcase because... Oh God! You were—I I still remember that day. You were so phenomenal. What happened, Kylie? Was is beautiful, and smart. My life was spinning like a CD, and she was the laser that made the music play. And then I die, and she winds up. Chewbacca, you're Han Solo. You want to know what makes me tick or don't you? The dirt didn't even settle on my coffin. And he steals my girl and knocks her up. I've been trying for 15 years to get back at that son of a bitch. I run customers out of his bar. I mess with the... Is that why you... Is that why you sabotaged the comedy show tonight? Yeah. No. I don't know. It was a, it was a guy. It was one of my favorite days to this to this day. And and when I get a new reel, it'll stay on there just because I like it. You know, when I add new stuff and I, I have to do that. I'm, I'm not the most business-like actor. I mean, I take it very seriously. But as far as, you know, like... Got to wake up at 830 and put all my clips together and drive over to Bob's editing suite and get my new reel. I'm not I'm not very good at that part, but I do have new I have new things that need to go on that reel. And, uh, you know, this was one of the problems I had when I was acting before I realized that I don't think I'm very good at it. Um, Being a writer, man, I had a hard time not wanting to edit poor writing <laughs> do you ever oh, have that problem yeah. because you you're oh, a writer yeah. first yeah. uh yeah i mean and I've, I've told people this before and it, 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 like i think at the audition now there's exceptions to every rule at the audition read their shitty fucking dialogue especially when you're doing indie because there's such a high chance that the person who's directing it also wrote the script right yeah so when you go audition He's like, take that out of the equation. Just read their damn words because it meant something to them when they wrote it and they're proud of it or they wouldn't have people auditioning for it. Then if they book you, then you can go, all right, bro, I'm not saying that. (laughs) You know, I'm not saying fucking strawberry pudding. There's no way in hell. So we're going to rewrite this line because this guy would not say strawberry pudding. Because then by that point, they've already they've already accepted you. Right. Yeah. I, you know, I have a friend who just thinks he's got to change every audition he does. And then, you know, he'll call me and go, I, 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 dude, I didn't book it. I thought I did a good job. And I'm like, did you go off the script? And he's like, well, you know, the third line, I just thought it would be, you know, he had it as as a 63 trans am and I changed it to an elephant. And I go, well, that's why you didn't book the motherfucking role because (laughs) everything else didn't matter at that point. You know, like you don't want to go into audition and, and have them go, what in the fuck is this guy talking about? (laughs) You know? And like, yeah. So, 
Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll go back with a script. I'm no genius, but I like I'll go. Hey, man, I'm not saying this on page 41, and I'm not saying this on page 83. Like, I got to say something different, you know, and if we're going to argue about it, we can argue about it. Maybe you can talk me into it. But yeah. And then there's other times where it's just completely implausible. And and fortunately, and it doesn't happen too often, but every once in a while, like somebody will send me something and go, hey, you want to do this? And I'll go, yeah, let me read it. Uh, no, yeah, no. You know, <laughs> you know I'm not mistrived starting to feel like I'm being Mr. Lesson guy, but, but really the world doesn't need another script about a kid whose dad might've drank too much and he turns into a serial killer. It doesn't really work that way. You know, the if, if daddy drinking too much turned people into a serial killer, 90% of the time, the population would be a lot smaller. Oh, you you should see how many bodies I have in my backyard. (laughs) Yeah. We, we need, we need different stories, you know, and now, you know, you're seeing a lot of that you're seeing all the like crazy twists of shit and and all the uh supernatural stuff and you know different twists on the superhero genre yeah and yeah there's a lot of there is a lot of quality writing out there now that there's seventy eight thousand platforms i know that you've done actually something that you did kind of inspired the truth shows where you know, just because I really liked hanging out with you and I really like your wit and how fast you are. You started even before I would ask you to do it at comedy clubs, you would do it at Gustling Alley, where you would just have people write little blurbs on pieces of paper, put them in a bucket, yeah. and then you would riff with it, which kind of, you know, inspired the truth show. Cause I was like, well, let's see how well people can riff with slides instead of suggestions on sheets of paper. When did you become comfortable improvising in an acting setting as opposed to, you know, being funny? When did I think yeah, I could take like shit that I did at the erotic poetry festival and transfer that into a, a like a film thing? Yeah. Like, I don't think there was ever a conscious moment like um I do remember and and I'm like this a lot, like somebody else has to tell me that that I'm capable of doing something or remind me that I'm capable of doing something. When I was doing the, the Land of the Outlaws pilot with John Patrick Hayden, who if anybody, you wouldn't know him by name necessarily, although you've definitely seen his face on a bunch of stuff, probably your friends that everybody would remember him most as playing uh, Daredevil's dad in the Netflix Daredevil. By my friends, you mean nerds. I, I get what you're saying, man. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, however you want to phrase it, Mike, <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you know, your legion of virgins. I don't know. Like, um, but no, but uh, so we're doing land of the outlaws and we're, our characters are rivals, but we got along really well off camera. And this situation arises where in this is a weird thing. I don't know that people would understand, but we shot all day a certain way, a certain direction. And then there's supposed to be a scene where like I walk off into the sunset, but now that's not going to work because we've gone too long and the sun's down and you know, it's just, we got to change shit up because we've taken too long. And so they kind of have this conference. Oh, oh we're going to rewrite this and we're going to do this. And John Patrick Hayden just goes, Hey, you know what? 
it's a friggin' fight scene. Me and Jimmy are just going to improv it. Turn the cameras on. Let's go. <laughs> and and they're like, well, we need to write. We need to make sure. And he goes, look, man, me and Jimmy are perfectly capable of improv this scene. Turn the cameras on. If you hate it, then you guys can write something. But let us just go. Right. And he, and he just points at me. He goes, you ready? And I'm like, my head is going... I don't know if I'm fucking ready. I'm like, I do I have a choice here? Like, and then we improv this whole back and forth argument thing, and then that leads to a fight, and then we do the fight, and then it's obvious physically that the fight is over, and the showrunner goes, "Yeah, that was completely awesome. Can we do that again?" And we're like, "Yeah, sure." And we did it again, and they kept it. And and then I'm like, "Oh, okay. If he's got the confidence. If Daredevil's dad has the confidence in me. I have the confidence in me too." Let's get to Terry. O'Reilly. Okay. Where would you like to see his character go forward from here? Because when we last left him, he was building his church. Yeah. I, 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 I like Terry as being sort of the bumbling evangelical, the well-meaning you know, and the the thing about Terry is that even though there's with astrophysics and pool, there's a little bit of a connection with with geometry and and math. Mm. Like he's also a guy that's really open to new experiences. I and like especially with women. <laughs> and um, but I think I think once Terry has gotten this, you know, now that he has a taste of his own religion once he's got a shot at it being like the l ron hubbard of his generation yeah he's he's gonna stay in that realm but he also would always have a side hobby if the pool thing like he's probably taken the pool thing as far as he can take it you know at washington <laughs> community college pocket and, billiards you know yeah. so <laughs> he, he, he would be that guy who runs like runs the cool religion but you know like scientology has the big building downtown mm -hmm. i mean there's got to be some kind of recreational rooms in there right <laughs> i mean you know or scientologists into like ping pong or like scientologists into like into jigsaw puzzles occlusionists need their own thing besides pool and i think you know terry pocket billiards you know like i think mm. i think like terry's got to come up with that and you know it could be it could be high level lego building um <laughs> you know right? yeah, yeah. Leg, lego building towards deeper spirituality um <laughs> like what company is going to give us a like a product placement for you know mr dr professor terry o'reilly to <laughs> encourage his flock to get into and uh i think i think we missed the, the fidget spinner boat <laughs> yeah i think that one has passed but you know and, and i think wally ball is beyond our budget but <laughs> um yeah yeah. Occlusionism, occlusionism needs you know. And softball is boring. I mean, you know, it's it's been done. I shouldn't say it's boring. I'm sure it's you know. I don't want the International Softball Association to be pissed off at the occlusionists. But yeah, we uh, and then like I think many good religious founders. I I think he's always going to have a taste for a lot of women. <laughs> yep. You know. Yeah. I mean, I I like. I think there's kind of a, he's kind of got a, a, you know, a little bit of a thing for Connie Meath, you know? Yeah. Like, and, and he's, you know, his nine, 
not wives. I, I can't remember yeah. what he calls them, but there is his spiritual life partners. Yep. <laughs> yes. His naked love companions is <laughs> yeah, you need that in life. I mean, we have to procreate the species, even though we don't have to procreate the species. We at least have to, you know, go through those motions. Oh, if, a, if Dickie had to call Connie Meef his stepmom, that would just break his poor little heart. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, I think, you know, Connie, Connie might play hard to get. I think, I think Connie might hop in the sack, but she might not want to walk down the aisle. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. And I don't, I don't really feel comfortable talking about her when she's not here <laughs> to discuss this with us because I enjoy her company as a human being. <laughs> Oh, okay, Daddy. Uh, <laughs> Jimmy, I I'm sorry did did I go in like reverse there? Like, where this is supposed to be not in character at all? I mean, Dicky's always surface level. He's beneath the skin for me. Um, yeah. Oh yeah, you've been playing him for so long. God, yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's like he, he's like he's like Dexter's uh, dark companion. What is, uh, yeah, what is, he's my dark what passenger. Did call that dark is, passenger. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, although sometimes I think I'm Dickie's dark passenger. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Dickie sometimes seems to be the more well-adjusted one. You ever talk to Benji as Dickie? No, no. Allison has absolutely forbidden me from bringing Dickie into the family. <laughs> wow. And she's probably right because I don't know if he would leave. Yeah. I have that where if I do like a Jeff Ford imitation, then I have a hard time not being Jeff Ford anymore. Yeah. I wonder, I mean, that would be I, like, seriously, I am absolutely dead serious. When I say this, that would be like a fascinating early childhood development master's thesis. Like when it is, when is it okay to introduce a different parental personality? Like what age can, is a kid's brain able to accept oh daddy's a performer and he can do like right. 19 different characters yeah. you know because i because okay robin williams had kids there's no way in hell robin williams wasn't busting out different characters in front of his kids oh yeah yeah and then the voice of elmo said that he like struggled to make sure that he only did elmo when he had an elmo, elmo with him did you ever see the documentary on Mr. Rogers? No. He would do the Daniel Kitty voice and I hopefully puppet too when he would want to talk to his kids about feelings and emotions, which is kind of weird. You know, when you think about yeah. it, there's a story about Mel Blank was in like a car accident and in a coma and yeah. completely unresponsive. And then the um, doctor who was taking care of him was like, I want to try something. And uh, so he, he goes to Mel Blank in the coma. He goes, uh, can I talk to Bugs Bunny? And Mel Blank goes, eh, what's up, Doc? And he was able to get him out of the coma get by talking. Yeah. Can you imagine oh, how upset Allison would be if I was in a coma and the only way to get me out was if she was like, Dickie. can I talk to Dickie? <laughs> <laughs> hey <laughs> i got uh, i got a bobo down below though 
Oh my God. Uh, what if you stuck that way? You came out and you uh, just thought you were dicky. Or a regarding Henry thing and I got shot in the head and the only personality that was left was dicky. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. We'd have to try and coax you back. <laughs> yeah. You know, at that point, just put a pillow over my face and put everyone out of their misery. <laughs> <laughs> I would want Dicky, man. I would want like, like as opposed to nothing. If like that was my my choice, like you get no mic, you get Dicky, or you get no mic at all. I'd be like, all right, let's go with Dicky now. Allison's in the other room, and I want to ask her, but I feel like that's a real Sophie's choice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Allison. If I was like had some sort of brain injury and you had your choice of either having me only be dicky or just putting a pillow over my face, what would you choose? She said she would miss me terribly. Did we miss anything? Was there anything big we wanted to get to that we can just cut to that chase? You know what? I just really kind of wanted to shoot the shit with you and have people get to know you a little bit better. And, uh, you know, there's no (laughs) there's no way for me to not sound creepy to hang out with you and go. Hey, what kind of student were you in high school? <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Um, but yeah, I just, I'm so excited to start reading your book. And uh, yes. I bought it as soon as you told me about it. And I think everyone else should go out and purchase it as well. I, I think, you know what? Based on like when a complete stranger says that he got the book and it took him about four stories to go right back to Amazon and order four for his family for Christmas. Oh, wow. That's the, that's the kind of review that makes me say, you know what? There, there's a lot of merit to it. It's not, you know, I'm not some like poor kid with like a trunk full of books going, buy my book because you're going to support a local artist. No, it's buy my book because it's fucking good. Yeah, and you're going to be entertained by it. And they're in their hundred word stories. So it, there's one in particular. It's about it on the surface. It's about parking. This is just one example. But when you're done reading it, you're going to go, why did that asshole write a story about parking? And then you're going to go, Oh, wait a second. He's not talking about parking. He, in a hundred words, he used parking as a fucking allegory. Mm-hmm. And this, and this is a little deeper. And you know, and then some of the stories are just more on the surface. But I, I already know people are thinking about them. I, my, my friend Tiffany, she was like, she, she comes out. I drive to her house to sign her book for her, and she comes out of the house and she's like going, okay. And the one story with the one guy, wh- what did it mean when he said like she had there was a question in there that she needed answered immediately hopefully there's a lot of stories like that where people have to think about them i remember one of the uh songs that you wrote that i assume would have been on a third release was robert mitchum's ghost was that the name of it yeah i loved that song and it's Man. like i don't even i don't know where a copy of that of a, a recorded version of that song is yeah i really would have loved to have seen what material a Jimmy nowadays would be putting out and just because I think it would you, be very similar to Robert Mitchum's ghost. Yeah. Um, I mean, you've just you grown know. so much as a human being and as an artist um, and yeah, you know, and I, and I hope people don't like walk away from this going. I mean, there's so many bands that I love, like it, um, you know, from Coxbar, which is an ultimate oh, yeah, sing-along yeah, yeah. band, you know, Co- Coxbar and The Clash, you know, Detroit 442, like, there's all all these bands, the Trash Brats who have a new record out, but, like, 
if I was writing songs today, you know what a song that like, and it's the one song of theirs and really the only one that's influential, influential to me is a state of love and trust by Pearl jam, mm-hmm. you know? And that's, I know that's not one of their big hits, but that's, I'm like, fuck if all their songs were like this, if, if, Pearl Jam was like the Ramones with State of Love and Trust, then they would be one of my favorite bands, but they're not. You yeah. know, they're good guys. I met them. They're, you know, Jeff Amentro is one of the best guys I've met in the, in the music business, but I'm still not what you'd call a Pearl Jam fan. But if you're asking me what kind of songs I'd be writing, they, they would probably sound something like that and yeah. be lyrically like that. Thank you so much for talking to me, man. I, uh, well, thank you for I, wanting to talk to me. It, uh, I, I've said it so many times that it never stops being surreal to go from being a teenage kid rocking out to your music in my bedroom at my parents' house to <laughs> now getting to just call you up whenever I want to and just say, Hey, man, how you doing? And, uh, I, I value our friendship tremendously. I have since I felt fortunate enough to get to say, Hey, I'm friends with Jimmy doom and I, I love you to death. <laughs> I'm buddy. friends with Mike Bobbitt. And you're like the, you're like the elder statesman King God of the Detroit comedy scene now. Well, I, <laughs> you know, I don't want you to be the godfather of one art scene and have me not. So you know, <laughs> this way you and I can both be the, the respected old dudes. <laughs> so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to be the old dude either. My haircut in Good Thief almost put me over the old dude edge, man. <laughs> like, you know, and I'm like, I'm talking to people and and then I'm I'm not, re- I'm, it's me, right? And I'm not realizing they're looking at this guy with a comb over going, who is this creepy old fucker? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't like it, but yeah, it's my job, Mike. 